The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4 for the last time, at least in this study. Romans chapter 4. Every reader of the Bible eventually has to come to confront the issue of the versification of the Bible. By versification, I mean that there are verses and there are chapters and there are headings and there are divisions. Almost every one of the 66 books in the Bible have been divided into chapters. There are a few exceptions, and these divisions were assigned uh, early in the 13th century. Some smaller books like uh, Jude have not been divided like that, 2nd, 3rd John. But most of the books in the Bible have chapters, have verses. Began, as I said, in the early in the 13th century and uh, was finalized in the mid-16th century where the verses were actually added, numbers were assigned, and it was a great benefit to the church. I praise God that we have verses in the Bible. I praise God that we have chapter divisions in the Bible. It will be very hard for me to say, turn in Romans about four pages in and find where it says, therefore. It be very difficult for us to be able to study Scripture as we do today. These markers are unspeakably helpful for finding and referencing points in the Scripture. However, please remember that they are not inspired by God. They're helpful. I'm grateful that they are there, but they don't have any divine authority. We should be grateful for these divisions, designations, but they sometimes can cause an unintended consequence. And that is we begin to think of books in the Bible in sections that aren't really intended to be sections in the flow of logic. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of verses. It's a collection of inspired books. And each one of these books has a logical and a theological and a deliberate sequencing in how it begins all the way through how it ends. Perhaps the primary task of every Bible student and certainly every preacher is to understand the progression of that argument, the marching of that theme, what's being developed from the mind of the writer into the pages of Scripture. The argument, the progression of a, of a biblical book, it's, it's very hard sometimes to guard against the temptation to view it as a series of chapters and a series of verses. We're glad those chapter markers are there, but sometimes they actually get in the way. I have in my possession a a copy of uh, the Word of God with no chapter divisions and no um, uh, versification. It's very interesting to read it like that, just as paragraphs. And I would encourage you to try to do that sometimes. You can actually find it online pretty simple. It helps you to figure out the flow of what's being said in a letter much more easily. Think if I wrote you a letter, someone wrote you a letter, and every line had, had a number by it, and there were chapters in the letter. That could get confusing. As thankful as we are for these, we have to remember that Romans chapter 4 
comes before Romans chapter 5 and right after Romans chapter 3. I went to seminary to learn that. In other words, it's a section of a bigger argument. As we have done over the last three chapters, after each study of the chapters in Romans, we're, we're kind of pulling the car over and, and looking back at the chapter that we've just studied and, and kind of gotten some altitude. What, what was the argument? Let's stitch this all together so that we can make sure what Paul is saying in a macro level, looking at the forest, so we don't get lost in the middle of the trees. Now, in order to begin our summary, which we've come to today in Romans chapter 4, having finished last week, the end of Romans chapter 4, we need to look at the first verse of Romans chapter 5. In this, we find really Paul's summary statement of all of Romans chapter 4. He's unpacking a doctrine that he summarizes very simply. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That little phrase, justified by faith, summarizes all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, built on chapter 2 and built on chapter 1. In the last part of Romans 3, Paul declares that the good news of God, the good news of salvation, provides God's righteousness, God's perfection, a righteousness that's given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, chapter 3, verse 22 says. So God has provided righteousness, the, the declaration of, not, of being not guilty to those who believe in Jesus Christ, chapter 3, verse 22 says. Believers then are justified or, or they're saved by believing in Jesus by faith, not by observing any works of the law, not by trying harder or being better. That's Romans 3, 28. But Paul knew that some people would push back on this thinking. Paul knew that the primary people who would push back on this thinking that you can't be saved by keeping God's law would be those who had God's law, those who treasured God's law, those who prided themselves in owning God's law, those who were the stewards of God's law, namely the Jews. He answers back in chapter 3, verse 31, on the contrary, we actually uphold the law. The gospel does not nullify what God said in the older covenant, in the Old Testament. Paul began the section by saying that the law and the prophets pay special witness to the gift of righteousness in chapter 3, verse 21. He began the entire letter by saying that the gospel had been promised by the Old Testament scriptures in chapter 1, verse 2. And the argument goes simply like this. The law of God was designed to lead people to the gospel. Remember when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, from your childhood, you've been taught the holy scriptures. That was the Old Testament that could lead you to the wisdom of understanding the need for the gospel. The gospel does not do away with or nullify the law in the same way that the Messiah does not do away or nullify the prophecies that actually predicted his coming. Instead, he fulfills them, and instead, the gospel fulfills the law. Now, let's get the highest altitude possible. Paul opens in chapter 1, and his basic tenet is this. The Gentiles need an alien righteousness to be accepted by God. They need a righteousness that's not their own. They need a perfection that they can never acquire. They are doomed. They are damned because of their sinful natures. 
All of chapter 1 unpacks and outlines that. In anticipation of what he knew the Jews would say in chapter 2, the message of that, uh, of chapter 2, is the Jews also need an alien righteousness, something they can't generate on their own. Then in chapter 3, he unpacks the problem of sin, the need for salvation. It is universal, comprehensive. No one can solve the problem of sin except Jesus Christ and except the gospel truth. Now, we've talked about uh, Romans in in a couple of different illustrations as we've studied these these last four chapters. We've said it's like a watch. It's like an automatic watch with all these wonderful gears that that move together, these springs that load the gears that, that keep time. But ultimately, if you turn that watch over and you look at the two hands, the ultimate goal is to tell you what time it is. Romans is like that watch. It gives you the gears of salvation, all that work together to make salvation uh, happen, to, to build it into a comprehensive doctrine. And yet, at the end of the day, it just tells you how you can be right with God, how one can be saved. Another way we've looked at that is it's like a lawyer arguing a case. Paul is a lawyer by training, not a lawyer in the sense of an attorney of civil law, a law, capital L, lawyer in the sense that he understood the Old Testament scriptures and the law so that he could as a scribe and a Pharisee and an understander of of things theological and things pertaining to the law, he could explain that. If anyone understood what the law could do in the Old Testament and what the law was limited by in the Old Testament, it was this expert in the law named Paul. After telling us that the Gentiles need an alien righteousness, the Jews need an alien righteousness, the problem of sin and the need for salvation is universal and it can only be accomplished by God in Christ, by the gospel, and extended to those who believe, he senses that people would say, nice idea, nice try, prove it prove it. How is this new idea of a crucified Messiah who would die for the sins of those who believe, how is it in any way connected to the way God saved people in the Old Testament? Chapter 4 is the answer to that question. It's the proof. It's the illustration. Now, as we look at this chapter, we're going to look at really a summary of Romans 4, and and we're going to look to the Old for proof of sola fide, the Old Testament. Looking to the Old Testament for proof of sola fide. Those are two Latin terms, faith alone. God saves people by believing and by believing alone, not by doing better or trying harder. Now let's approach this uh, chapter maybe a a little differently than we have in the past. We just need to ask some questions and let chapter 4 answer them. So let's ask these questions and just high altitude look at Romans 4 and see how Paul would answer this. Now this is critically important as we ask these questions because these answers will provide the foundation for chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Question number 1. How was Abraham saved? You say, why does that matter? The Jews had trouble with this. Paul was saying you can be saved by believing what God has done in Christ. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to keep any regulations. You don't have to check off these boxes. You don't have to keep a certain amount of the law. 
and these Jews, and sometimes the Jewish proselytes who had been, uh, the Gentile proselytes who had been engaged with understanding Judaism, would have said, now hang on, that doesn't make sense. You're telling me that God told us all these things to do in the Old Testament. And now in Christ, all we have to do is believe. That seems in contradiction. Those are two different ways to be saved. Paul knew that that would be the question. So he plucks out of the Old Testament the father of the Jews. He says, I'm going to prove that this is not only the way God saves people now, but I'm going to prove to you this is the way God has always granted righteousness to people. How was Abraham saved? Well, first of all, he's saved by, by being declared righteous. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. How did he find righteousness? For if Abraham was justified, this is made right, made holy, declared not guilty, by works, by doing things in law, he has something to brag about, to boast about, but he could never brag before God. How can a sinner ever brag to a, a perfect deity? Look at what I've done. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Now he goes back to Genesis 15, 6 and says, here's the foundation for Abraham being saved. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, not only to the one who works. His wage is not credited as the favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If you're an underliner in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 5 is one of those epic verses. How was Abraham saved? God said, I'm going to declare you as perfect and as righteous. As righteous. How? Get this. By believing me, God says. By simply believing. That's the, the basis of gospel truth. And he's showing the Jews and anyone who wants to listen, that's the way God has always operated. This is not new. How was Abraham saved? Well, we just read it. By faith without works. By faith without works. Verse 5 again. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, not his work, his faith is credited to him as Righteousness, not guilty. Are, are you ready to say it? Perfection. Abraham was saved by a declaration of God because he believed God. It was by faith. It was without his contribution of works. Now, we've been studying this for a few months now. We have talked about this for a few years now. And in all sorts of reading and Bible study, we've heard this preached, sola fide, so many times. But imagine if you've never heard this before. Imagine the aha moment for these Jews who would have said, wow, it does say in my Bible, in my Old Testament, that Abraham believed God and God said, because you believe in me, I declare you perfect and righteous. They would have had an aha moment at this juncture, and we should too. But this leads to a second question that's asked. When was Abraham saved? This is critical to understand faith above works. 
When was Abraham saved? Verses 9 to 12 tell us that. We're going to come back to to verses 5 to 8 in a moment. Is this the blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? You could even say, when would this happen? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then he answers this question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of righteousness, of faith, which he had while, this is key, uncircumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being Jewish, without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision but also follow the steps of the faith of our father Abraham which he had while he was uncircumcised. Abraham was saved before he was given the right of circumcision. This would have been shocking. Let me put it in an absolute third grade level understanding. Abraham was saved before Abraham was Jewish. That's what he's saying. His Jewishness was marked by his circumcision. Abraham was saved 14 years before that. How was Abraham saved? We just looked at it. Because he believed God. So, when did this happen? Before he was Jewish. Before he was circumcised. Not only that, the next two verses go on to tell us that he was also saved before the giving of the law, verses 13 to 15, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law hadn't even been given yet. Moses wasn't even a dream yet. How could he possibly have obeyed the law? For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. It's very clear what he's saying. The law was given to show us our sin and our need for righteousness. The law was not given so we could obey and become righteousness, righteous. Prove that. Because Abraham was righteous before the law ever came into existence. The when of Abraham's salvation is critical for the illustration. Let's put that in our vernacular for a second. Now, now you know that we, we um, ascribe to a theology that has been called lordship salvation. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is Lord, and to come to him by faith is to submit to him as Lord. But we also have to be careful in believing that a true believer tries to follow, tries to honor Christ, is is humbled and is sorry when he doesn't. We have to be careful that we don't smuggle that sanctification back into our justification. Yes, a believer should obey. But you don't obey to get saved. We obey because we are saved. Abraham's the illustration of that because he was He was granted righteousness. He was saved before the law was even written. Now this leads to what what were the results of Abraham's salvation? What happened because of this? Well, first of all, he was given a 
physical seed in verses 18 to 20, 18 to 22. He was given the Jewish race. Now, there's a, there's a little hidden hint in here that the Jewish uh, 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 the Israel and the Jews should have seen all along and is so easy to miss. He was given a physical seed, the Jewish nation, verse 18. In hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations. Did that really just say that? They would have thought, Paul would have said, the father of the Jews. But he said the father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body as, as good as dead. He's 100 years old. Deadness of Sarah's womb, she's 90 But with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. God said, I'm going to give you nations. He took him out. Look at the stars. Count them. Can you? Impossible. That's what your descendants are going to be like. Go to, the, go to the, 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 the sea. Pick up a, a handful of sand. You can't even count the, the grains of sand in your hand, much less the beaches of the world. That's what your descendants illustratively are going to be like. But it's not just your Jewish seed. It's also a spiritual seed. Going back up to verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, not only the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made in you, in the presence of him who believed, there it is again, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. What is he saying there? Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. How would he do that? If he was the father of the Jews, how would he be the father of many nations? Because Jesus Christ would come as a seed of Abraham, become the Messiah, be declared as the Messiah. Remember chapter 1, by his resurrection, announced to the world, this is final proof. And because of that, Read Revelation 4 and 5. Every tribe, every tongue will come and give homage to the son who is the son of Abraham. It's a spiritual seed. Verses 23 and 20 to 25 talk about that same thing. Not only for our, uh, was it written for his sake, but our sake also. We were given this wonderful, glorious plan that God, God doesn't, God doesn't ask for mulligans. There's no do-over. There's no, well, we tried this Jewish thing. It didn't work, so now we're going to try the Christian thing. No, no. It's all one comprehensive story that God saves by faith because of his granting of grace. But he also gave us a faithful example. 
The results of his salvation were a physical seed, the Jewish nation who gave us the Messiah, a spiritual seed, that's us who believe in that Messiah, and a faithful example, verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, and then we find out that he was 100, Sarah was 90, and he believed, listen, he believed what was fundamentally impossible and unbelievable. How does that equate to us? Well, if you go down the text, we believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead after his crucifixion, which is fundamentally impossible and unbelievable. That's the connection. As ridiculous as it would be for a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old to say, we're going to have a child, and God said, that's the way it's going to be. We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead after being crucified, killed, confirmed dead, a sword piercing his side to prove that he was dead. And that's what we believe. If we believe what God has done, he will take that belief and credit that belief with righteousness and perfection and declare us not guilty and say, you now belong to me. What if we ever sin again? The declaration is that we're not guilty. Remember we talked about the difference between imputation and infusion? This is the difference between Catholicism on the one hand and Protestantism on the other. We believe we are declared declared righteous. He declares us. That's imputation. He credits us with righteousness versus infused righteousness, which means he makes us righteous. And as we say over and over, if God made us righteous, gave us that perfection when we were saved, how has that worked out for us? Not so well, huh? That's Abraham. Abraham is the proof that God saves by grace through faith. There's one more example, though. And he sticks this in verses 5 to 8. It's interesting. David is an illustration of the illustration of Abraham. We go back to pick that up. How in the world does David illustrate the blessing of sola fide? Now think about this. If Paul were going to call two witnesses to the stand to testify to the truthfulness of salvation by grace through faith, and they were to have street cred with the Old Testament believers, with with the Jews, if they were going to have credibility with these people, who could he call of greater significance than Abraham and David? No one. So most of the chapter deals with Abraham, but he does in verses Five and six and uh, five to eight deal with David. How does David illustrate this blessing? Well, first of all, by showing the blessings of righteousness gain. Remember, we looked at David's sin in the book of Second Samuel and what he had done with Bathsheba. How a man after God's own heart in the pride of his own life, took another man's wife, lay with her. She becomes pregnant. Then he conspires 
for the execution and the murder of her husband to cover up his tracks. Nathan then comes in Second Samuel 12 and confronts him. It's a great story. Remember, he tells him a story of this man who comes and and he, he's a stranger, this, this, this man who's hosting him needs a, a little lamb, a little ewe lamb, and, and goes to a poor man, takes that lamb from him, slays it, offers it up, and David's enraged and says, that man deserves death. And Nathan says, actually, you, you are that man. If that were the end of the story, we would have great reason to question, who, how is David a man after God's own heart, Right? How's David, this great spiritual leader, this great spiritual pillar, how how can we look to David with any degree of respect? Except that he then goes and cries out to God, read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51. And that's where Paul goes to talk about David's blessing. He says, he's the blessing, he shows us the blessing of righteousness gained and also the blessing of sin forgiven. He quotes Psalm 32, blessed are those, verse 7, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. The connection of that verse to the gospel should cause us all to stop and take a deep breath of gospel oxygen. Have you known the blessing of that forgiveness? Here's the key. Unless you've sensed the blackness of damnation, the horror of judgment, the fear of God, then you can't say with David, what a blessing are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and, and whose sins they've been covered up. Blessed is the man whose sin in the Lord, whose sin the Lord will not. Here's that word, Impute, take into credit. He shows us the blessing of being forgiven. I think every believer starts with some association with this, but every believer must constantly fight to get to this point where we stop and say, I can't believe that I am not going to pay for my sin in hell. How blessed that he wipes it clean. It's it's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You need to understand that Paul is building an argument. That Paul is saying very clearly and very carefully, this, the, the Gentiles, they're, they're wicked sinners. Just look at what comes out of their heart. The Jews can't say because they have the law that, that they're any better than them. It still comes out of the heart. They possess the law, but they do the very things that the Gentiles do or they think about them. Every person is condemned. There's none righteous, not even, how many? One Yet God has granted that those who believe that he has made a way can be saved. Let me say it again for the umpteenth time. Can you believe that it's that simple? 
that God has said, I, I will take initiative. I will take care of this. I will wipe your sins away. I will send my son to die for you. And if you'll believe that that's the fact, you're forgiven? Is that just mind-numbingly awesome? Justification by faith, being right before God, by faith alone is the powerful accent of the gospel. It strips every man and every woman of any prideful tendencies to pound their chest and spike the ball in heaven before God and say, look what I've done. I'm better than that person or that person. God says, no. There's none righteous, not even one. The only person I will ever entertain in my presence is the one who believes in the righteousness of my son being given to them by faith and the taking away of their sin by his death. Now, back up a second. Paul is, remember, take the chapters away. Take the verses away. Every Gentile is lost and needs a savior. Every Jew is lost and needs a savior. There is none righteous, comprehensive sin. All are are, are forsaken God. There's none righteous, not even one. God has provided a way for sin to be taken away and forgiven, for righteousness to be given by believing the gospel. Just by believing, yeah, let me show you. That's the way God's always saved Abraham proves it. David proves it. All of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 are packed into chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified, made righteous by faith. Now, here's here's the great news. Chapter 5, chapter 6, Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are a practical, so what? Okay, great, I get it. We believe and he gives. I got it, Paul, over and over. You've told me this, I don't know how many times and how many different ways. So what? Well, chapter 5 begins, so what? Next week, we're not even going to get out of verse 1. Next week, we're going to talk about the long war against God that mankind has waged. And can I say this? The long war that God has waged against mankind. And look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Because everything we've studied, having been justified by faith, we can have peace with God. How do you do that? Through the gospel. Chapter 5 is precious territory, but it cannot make sense without chapter 4, 3, 2, and 1. Chapter 6, how we fight sin, is precious territory, but it can't happen without chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 7, our fight as a believer against sin. You have to have the first six chapters. Chapter 8, probably the favorite chapter of most Christians I know, will not, cannot make sense without the first seven chapters. Erase the chapters, erase the verses, just 
mentally and see what Paul is teaching and how Paul is building. Justification has dominated the first four chapters. Now sanctification will dominate the next four chapters. Said another way, right Christian living, chapters five through eight, follow right Christian believing, chapters one through four. Said another way, right Christian believing that doesn't lead to right Christian living equates to not really believing. And we'll hit that in chapter five and six and seven. Back to our illustration of the watch. I told you I love, I love the clockworks, the inner workings of a mechanical device, a watch, to see the gears, to see the springs, to see the levers, to see the stops, to see the safes that keep it from being wound too tightly. When you know what's going on inside that watch, and you see what time it is, you appreciate it much more. But if you know what's going on in the watch and you never know what time it is, what's the point? Romans, the book of Romans is given to you and given to me, and it says, this is salvation. Do you know how it works? If you know how it works, you will be a thankful, well-informed well-equipped Christian who knows why they believe so that they know why they live the way they do. We're raising a generation, junior hires, high schoolers, children's, collegiate. We're raising a generation who we are telling, live like this. And their right question ought to be, why? Why? Romans 1 through 4 answers that question. So now we come to how we get to live Chapter 5 is a transition. And it starts saying, so what? It has taken us 40 uh, 40, uh, sermons to get through the first four chapters. That's about 10 a chapter. It's going to significantly slow down from here forward. This is the densest, most rich section, I think, of God's word. Um, and we're not in a hurry, okay? We're going to take our time and go through this. So next week we start with the war with God that he settles on both of our behalf. Father, I'm, I wish we could start chapter five, verse one right now. To know that peace has been established because of our justification by you, for you, by you alone. Give us an understanding of this book so that we know not only why and how salvation works, what drives us to make the decisions that we do, what drives us to Avoid the things we avoid and pursue the things that we pursue. We've looked at justification for four chapters, the better part of a year. And now we turn our attention to sanctification, holiness, the life that you call us to live, the life you want us to enjoy. 
Give us perspective, Father. Help us to know how the clock works and what time it is. Because of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, this is... We've worked hard to get through those first four chapters. And I understand three and four is hard because it says the same thing every, every verse. Just illustrates it differently. That was all hard work, so now that we can get to chapter five and following, this is just, please start reading chapter five through eight. This is going to be, I think, um, a significant time of change in the life of our church because God's gonna change us if we really understand these four next four chapters. Uh, our prayer room is gonna be open in uh, a few moments. If you have questions about um, your soul, what's, um, what's on your heart, if there's questions we can answer, talk to you about the gospel, how you can come to be saved today, don't leave. Um, I think Aaron's gonna be over there in a few minutes. We'd love to be able to pray with you. If there's a burden that we can share with you, we would love to do that as well. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Please come back tonight. Q&A on uh, church, MRBC, theology, anything you want, anything I don't know, I'll defer to Mike Walgie anyway. So uh, it'll be a fun night. And um, uh, we are also going to eye contact, okay? We need you to come and help serve our, the ladies in our church so we can set up the room uh, for their Christmas coffee uh, this Thursday night. Father, dismiss us now with amazement and wonder that you would save sinners by believing that you would save sinners by the cross and the resurrection of your precious Lord Jesus, your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.